0: As Stephen Minio and Barbara Rogers fell deeper into internet conspiracy videos and groups, they found each other and connected on their shared beliefs. But when their religious leader turned on one of them and then both, tragedy followed. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. This is the last chance to announce that I will be in the Atlanta, Georgia area on December 3rd for a big live show. If you happen to be in the area and want to go but can't afford a ticket, reach out to me at crimelinespodcast at gmail.com and I may be able to reserve a last minute ticket for you if there is space. Just don't be shy about reaching out. I also wanted to say that a couple of weeks ago, I released an episode called The Hudson Funeral Home Murders. I then released a bunch of bonus content, Halloween stuff, right after. And I can tell from the analytics on my end that that episode got absolutely buried and people missed it. So if you missed it and you want to hear it, please go back to October 24th in the feed and check it out. It is a very interesting case. With that out of the way, let's get into this week's case. The main sources for this episode were an article by Jack Flanagan with New Republic and season two of Vice's documentary series, The Devil You Know. The Vice series was about a larger story, but I was just watching it for the information on this case, and then I ended up watching every episode, even the ones not about the case, because it was that interesting. So I definitely recommend watching it. I found this story when I was searching the Barbara Anderson case from a few weeks ago because combinations of my search terms brought this up. And when I went to put it on my possible topics list, I realized that it had already been put on my list because of a suggestion from Nate. So thank you, Nate, for another great suggestion. And I definitely wanted to cover it because of something I've become aware of as someone who has children who are teens and young adults, and that's the influence of the Internet. We worry about predators alluring our children away, but we need to be just as mindful of radicalized belief systems that do the same thing and are delivered in a never-ending supply. So let's go ahead and get started with a couple, Stephen Minneo and Barbara Rogers. Stephen grew up in New Jersey with his parents and a brother. He and his brother were just a year apart and very close growing up. When Stephen was 16, his mother Donna left with pretty much just the clothes on her back. She claimed that Stephen's father was abusive towards her and had been for years, and she finally had the ability to leave but she wasn't in a position to take her teen sons with her. And she told Oxygen that the boys didn't understand her leaving. Add to that their father talking badly about her, and Stephen decided he did not want contact with his mother, though she continued to try. Stephen was a shy teenager, and he did have trouble making friends face-to-face. So he turned to the internet to connect with others who had the same or similar interests, and one of those interests was in conspiracies and conspiracy theories. When Stephen was 17 and his mother had been gone for about a year, he came across a woman named Sherry Schreiner. Sherry had a show on the Trusted Old Blog Talk radio, and she started that show as a stay-at-home mom living in Ohio. Blog Talk, if you don't know, is a live internet radio platform, and it is used by some podcasters. In the true crime space, I think most of us would know about Blog Talk, thanks to True Murder with Dan Zupansky, who, along with the Generation Y, was an OG true crime podcaster. Sherry also had multiple websites, a YouTube channel, and a Facebook group. So whatever platform you were on looking up conspiracy theories, you had a good chance of stumbling on Sherry Schreiner. And most people who found her were not looking for her directly. They would find her as they searched YouTube or the internet for more information on a specific conspiracy theory that they were interested in. They'd go deeper and deeper until the algorithm sent them from Art Bell a few steps down the line to eventually Sherry Schreiner. Her podcast was called Blacklisted News and Bible Prophecy. Sherry's group or belief system was attractive to people who believed in conspiracy theories because she had an explanation for all of it. It really didn't matter which theory you believed in that got you to Sherry because she was a funnel of sorts. Are you curious about 9-11 conspiracies, the New World Order, celebrity changelings, Area 51, mass tragedies as false flags, the Illuminati? Pick your conspiracy theory, and Sherry Schreiner had the answer. And to let you know what that answer is, I'm going to let Sherry Schreiner tell you. The description of her blog talk show reads, in part, On this radio show, I deal with the New Age Reptilian Agenda, a.k.a. the NWO, taking over the earth, and how it relates to Bible prophecy, the Bible codes, and you. I talk about what so few people can or will, how our government, churches, media, and entertainment have been taken over by a secret alien agenda. Exactly who are the Illuminati? I'll tell you why you shouldn't be afraid of them, but repulsed by them. Come on, folks, there's not much time left. Wake up. Sherry taught that the U.S. government had traded control of human beings over to aliens in exchange for technology. That's why we developed our technology so quickly. These weren't just aliens, but reptilian aliens, and not just that, but they also worshipped Satan. And even scarier, they could shapeshift, and up to 75% of the people you meet and interact with every day are not, in fact, humans. She said we were approaching a critical mass of these clones, and there would eventually be a war between the real humans and the fake ones. Sherry would be accused from time to time of being a cult leader, though she denied it. She said she was just a person with a voice living in the backwoods of Ohio, and she chose to use that voice. If people listened to her, that was up to them. Now, it's not clear the exact path of how Stephen first found Sherry, but when he did find her, he was young, impressionable, and swayed by a woman he eventually saw as a mother figure. Stephen's actual mother watched this unfold on his Facebook page. While he didn't want contact with her, Donna used a fake profile so she could watch and interact with Stephen without him knowing it was her. At first, it looked like Stephen was just posting a lot of biblical stuff. It did become more about the fire and brimstone and Book of Revelations and of the world parts of the Bible. And then it started to become more and more about Sherry Schreiner's teachings on conspiracies and aliens and demons. Stephen grew so close to Sherry because Sherry did one thing that a lot of online conspiracy theorists didn't do she responded. Alex Jones was not going to see her Facebook message and certainly was not going to respond to it, but Sherry did. She engaged with people. If they sent her questions, she'd answer. If they commented on her YouTube videos, she'd respond. Sherry seemed to live online, posting several times a day on social media, in addition to putting out her radio show a couple times a week and her YouTube channel, and then going through and replying to all of these people. Stephen became even more involved with Sherry when he volunteered to write blog posts for her. The two were about as close as Sherry let anyone get. For all of her online engagement, she did keep internet people on the internet. She used her real name, but the only photo she put online was decades old, and she never showed her face in videos. Everything was done as a voiceover. She said she lived in rural Ohio, but was not more specific than that. And it seems like she rarely, if ever, met with people in real life. So Sherry was both incredibly accessible, but then incredibly private. She compartmentalized her life. But thanks to a number of journalists, we do know a lot more about Sherry than she probably ever wanted people to know. Sherry Schreiner was born in 1965 to a devout Christian family. And by devout, I mean no movies, no dancing, church every Sunday, living, breathing the Bible every day type of devout. When Sherry went to college, it was no surprise she picked the conservative Liberty Baptist University run by Jerry Falwell. He, too, preached about how Satan controlled the U.S. and how the country was on the path to destruction. To be fair, he had a lot fewer reptilian-alien overlords in his doctrine, but the foundations of Sherry's future teachings are definitely there. Another thing Sherry learned from Falwell was the power of broadcasting a message. She had grown up watching the old-time gospel hour and then saw him live while she was at Liberty. His message got out much farther than the auditorium, and it went into households everywhere. Sherry wanted to follow that path, and her dream was to work for CNN. After Liberty, she self-reportedly went to Kent State and got a degree in journalism, political science, and criminal justice. The 25-year-old Sherry then moved to the big city to pursue her dream of working for CNN. Rather than work her way up from the local news market to national news, Sherry thought she could just walk right into a job at CNN. And obviously, it didn't work out that way. Her story would later be that God told her she had to give up her hopes and dreams to serve him. To get a job in the media, which was obviously run by Satan, you had to engage in satanic rituals which Sherry rejected. So basically, she told people she rejected a job that we know was never offered to her. Sherry got married, settled down, and had four children. She was being honest when she said she lived in the backwoods of Ohio. She lived in Carrollton, a town of about 3,000 people, and her house was on a heavily treed lot. In the search for a hobby and maybe a way to make a little extra money from home, she started blogging. Then came the radio show on Blog Talk and the YouTube channel. She had finally broken into broadcasting on her own terms. Following all of this came self-published books, which are still available, by the way, a GoFundMe that made about $700,000 over 10 years and a Patreon with a tier as high as $1,000 a month. So when I pitch my Patreon and Apple subscriptions that are $3 to $10 a month, I don't want to hear a single complaint. Sherry eventually grew her YouTube channel to a respectable 20,000 followers, and who knows how many listened to her radio show, whether live or streamed, or visited any of her 19 websites and engaged with her on her other social media. Her religion was, at the core, doomsday Christianity, plus every conspiracy theory you can imagine. But I don't want people to get the idea that she was just some kooky lady making some money talking about religion and conspiracies. Sherry Schreiner's teachings were hate-filled and bigoted. They included all the isms and the phobias out there. In the intro to her podcast, She denounces homosexuality, lesbianism, confusion of traditional male and female roles, rap music, and breakdancing. She was also extremely anti-Semitic. Pretty much all of the conspiracies could be blamed on people who weren't straight, Christian, and American. Because people who weren't those things were probably Satanists. She also told her followers that they should arm themselves since it was time to fight and defend humanity, and they needed to be prepared to die. Stephen Minio grew closer and closer to Sherry in spite of never meeting her in person. He ended up starting his own YouTube channel to talk about his thoughts on these conspiracies and her teachings, and he was very active in her community online, particularly Facebook. And Stephen had the time to devote to this since he rarely had steady employment. He managed to eke out a living by picking up broken electronics, fixing them, and then selling them on Craigslist. Stephen met several people through Sherry Schreiner's group, and these were not people who would step back away slowly when he would start talking about demons and aliens and shapeshifters because they too believed in it. One person Stephen met was Barbara Rogers, a woman 10 years his senior. Barbara lived in Florida and found Sherry when she was looking up conspiracy theories, just like Stephen. Unlike Stephen, though, Barbara had quite a bit of life experience. Yet she still felt that those around her did not fully understand her, and they probably didn't. Barbara had bipolar disorder, and her symptoms included intrusive thoughts and occasionally delusions. Barbara had gotten married young the first time around and had a daughter. That marriage did not last long, and to support herself, Barbara joined the army. To give her daughter some stability and to have child care while Barbara was working at bases far from family, her daughter stayed with Grandma. Barbara met another soldier named Joel, and they began dating. They had been together for around three or four months when Barbara, realizing this relationship was going somewhere, told him that she had a daughter who was living with her mother. Joel, though surprised, told Barbara that they should go get her daughter, and the two of them could raise her. Barbara and Joel married, raising first her daughter and then two more children after that. After the birth of her third child, Barbara started experiencing a mental health crisis. She said she was hearing voices, but rather than calling for mental health help, she called the base chaplain because she thought this meant demons were after her. After she attempted to overdose on pills, she was admitted into the hospital. Barbara was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and was eventually given a medical discharge from the army. Things got worse from there, as Barbara was not consistently on her medication. Barbara came to believe that she was an angel and that there were demons around her, always ready to attack. And that was primarily what attracted her to Sherry Schreiner the focus on good versus evil along clear binary lines. Eventually, Barbara and Joel separated, and it appears Joel got custody at some point along the way. Barbara Rogers and Stephen Minio met in Sherry's Facebook group, and they started talking online, first as friends, just talking about ideas. Then they started flirting a little, and Stephen, who had never really had a serious girlfriend, found that this online relationship was a lot easier to navigate than an in-person one. Barbara traveled to New Jersey to visit Stephen a few times in person, which just solidified their romantic relationship. During this same time, Sherry Schreiner was talking to Stephen about moving away from the city and out into the Poconos in Pennsylvania. She had been preaching for a while that people needed to get out of the cities, She told her followers that they had to go up into the mountains for safety since the cities were targets for the apocalypse. In the mountains, they would be safe from martial law and the New World Order. What Sherry didn't tell Stephen to do was move to the Poconos with Barbara. But that's exactly what happened in February 2017. 32-year-old Steven Minio and 42-year-old Barbara Rogers found a place together near the small community of Tobyhanna in Pennsylvania. The two wanted to live off the grid, but they settled for a small studio apartment that was essentially an in-law suite or granny flat at the back of a house. Though the house wasn't off the grid, it did back up to the woods and it was in a rural area, so it was close enough. A neighbor later said that the two mostly kept to themselves, but he did notice Stephen would put out items that looked like hockey pucks, and he said they warded off evil spirits. This was something else Sherry did to bring in a little income. She sold these homemade pucks called Oregon for a starting price of around $34 each, plus shipping. I will say pretty much everyone pronounces Oregon differently, Oregon, Oregon, Oregon. I'm just going to say it the way it comes out. So if I shift pronunciations, just let's pretend we all know what I'm talking about. At its core, these Oregon pucks are the worst podcast merch I have ever seen. But in fairness, Sherry did give everyone the directions on how to make them at home. It was just throwing a bunch of things like quartz, brass, aluminum, copper, and other stones, and then casting them in resin. How to make these wasn't exactly a secret, since Sherry had borrowed this idea of the orgone from teachings of someone else, which was not unlike the rest of her teachings. It's not like Sherry came up with these theories out of thin air. Sherry would sell these to people who were not interested in mixing the items together at home. And if you happen to find yourself in need of one today, you can actually find sellers who make them and put them up on Etsy. Stephen decided to make his own, and he would put them around the house to keep out the demons and reptilian aliens. Barbara would also drive him around the area until they found a spot that was lacking in orgone energy and Stephen would throw some pucks out of the car window. Sherry truly had few followers as devoted as Stephen Minio, and Stephen now had another woman in his life, someone he was calling his wife. Obviously, Stephen and Barbara did not get legally married, since the government was run by reptilian demon aliens, but they did choose to present themselves as husband and wife. Sherry, in my opinion, was jealous. She was basically the mother-in-law who couldn't accept that her son was under another woman's influence. It's actually a little strange to see such a common dynamic show up in the middle of talk about the New World Order, but at the end of the day, we are talking about human beings with human feelings and anxieties and motivations. In reality, Barbara's presence reinforced Sherry's teachings for Stephen. The two would watch the videos together and listen to the podcast and stay up late talking about all these ideas. Now Stephen didn't just rely on the Internet. He had Barbara reinforcing this, and he had also raised the stakes because he had someone to protect. Stephen became even more devoted to watching out for shapeshifters and reptiles to the point that he was heading towards full paranoia. Obviously, a dose of paranoia is always required to buy into Sherry's teachings because they really were all about protecting yourself and humanity from these invisible dangers all around. Online, though, Sherry didn't see that Barbara was actually pushing Stephen deeper into this belief system. Stephen was still in the Facebook group, but now he could talk to Barbara, so every single thought didn't need to end up on Facebook. And Barbara was in the group as well, but she was pretty quiet, preferring to leave it to Stephen to comment for the both of them. It's not clear if Sherry noticed how little Barbara seemed to be involved in the group, but I think she did. And that's because the first time Barbara seemingly stepped out of line, Sherry pounced. In April 2017, about two months after Barbara moved in with Stephen, she made a Facebook post on her own account, on her own wall timeline thing, and it was a picture of steak tartare. And it basically said that while a lot of people think it's gross, she liked it with minced garlic and that she actually craved it. Steak tartare, for those not aware, is a patty of ground beef and seasoning that is served raw. It is often topped with a raw egg yolk, which is how the picture Barbara posted had it prepared. Sherry wrote on Facebook that Barbara's craving for raw meat meant that she ingested blood, which meant she was a vampire witch. Sherry warned Stephen that he had to leave Barbara to save himself, and then she kicked Barbara out of the group. This was not the first time Sherry had declared a group member a reptile or a demon or whatever. When she did, she would encourage the group to turn on that person, not shun them and ignore them, not excommunicate them, but actually attack them online, which they did. Stephen had seen this play out over the 15 years or so he had followed Sherry, and he was blindsided that this was happening towards Barbara. He first tried to reason with Sherry and explained that there had to have been some misunderstanding. Barbara was not out to destroy him or anyone else. Sherry said it was no misunderstanding, and if he stayed with Barbara, nothing good would come of it. Stephen then tried to show Sherry evidence that she was wrong. One night while Barbara was sleeping, Stephen put a bunch of those Oregon Pucks stone things on her. If she was evil, this would have hurt her, but she just woke up confused about what he was doing. He took a picture of Barbara holding the stones and sent them to Sherry. This didn't sway her in the least, and Stephen was frustrated and confused. He knew Barbara wasn't a vampire witch. He had proven it to Sherry using Sherry's own teachings about the Oregon, and Sherry told him that he was still wrong. This group and Sherry's teachings had been the center of his life for 15 years, and now it was contradicting itself. This is something worth understanding about these more radicalized ideologies. External logic applied to them will not help. Once someone has made the leap into believing them, there are different perimeters, It's when it becomes internally inconsistent that cognitive dissonance seeps in. Oregon stones cannot be held by a vampire witch. Barbara can hold the stones. Therefore, Barbara isn't a vampire witch. We may think obviously Barbara is not a vampire witch because they don't exist. But Stephen believed they did. So it was only when Sherry's teaching became contradictory within the belief system that he started to question her. And once that opening to questioning Sherry happened, there was room to expand within it. Stephen went to a friend of his named Lori who wrote about biblical prophecies coming true in modern times, so definitely along the lines of some of Sherry's teachings. But Lori was not a believer in all of what Sherry talked about, and she sat Stephen down and pointed out the ways that Sherry's views were not biblical. He straight out asked Lori if she thought Barbara was some type of non-human, and she said, of course not. So Sherry set Stephen up to be in a position to choose between the group he had belonged to for 15 years, and was essentially his religion, and Barbara, the first person he ever really loved in a romantic sense. And to Sherry's surprise, he chose Barbara. But this choice sent him in a bit of a tailspin. By rejecting Sherry and her teachings, he came to believe she was a false prophet. A false prophet that he had followed for 15 years without question. Stephen's friend Lori told Oxygen that this wasn't just a crisis of faith for Stephen, but a crisis of identity because he had made Sherry and her belief system his entire life. When Stephen made his views on Sherry known, he, too, was kicked out of the group. Being ostracized from the group wasn't nearly as hard on Barbara, though obviously she wasn't happy about it, but she was more upset about how it was affecting Stephen so negatively. She wanted to move on, but the same energy Stephen put into the group when he was part of it was the energy he put into exposing Sherry as a false prophet. He made some videos for his YouTube channel talking about Sherry's false teachings. He tried to reach out to someone else who had been in the group, who lived near Sherry, who also wanted to expose her, but the two eventually had a falling out. Stephen wanted to prove that Sherry was a hypocrite and a sinner and broke biblical rules like prohibitions on eating shrimp and even her own prohibition on smoking. I mean, her podcast is still up, so if you want to go listen to it real quick and let me know if you think this woman is a smoker or not, you let me know. I don't think there was much of a question there, but apparently Stephen wanted hard evidence of her smoking a cigarette. I have no idea why he thought she ate shellfish, but the issue here was that the other guy didn't care about those things. He wanted to expose Sherry as a fraudulent religious leader with a false belief system. They were not able to overcome this difference in approach to exposing Sherry. But Stephen was not deterred when Plan A fell through. He moved on to Plan B and hired a private investigator to track Sherry down and get a video of her smoking. The P.I. was not able to get what Stephen wanted in the amount of time Stephen was willing to pay for. So this major expose that Stephen planned was not coming to fruition. During this time frame, Stephen was recording his thoughts using voice memos, so we can see into his mind a little bit. He said at one point he was considering going to a mental institution because he was falling apart. And I truly wish he would have. Barbara, who seemed to be the more stable of the two at the time, hoped Stephen would eventually get through this the way you get over any bad breakup, but he just wasn't letting it go. It certainly didn't help that Sherry's remaining followers had that practice of trolling and cyberbullying anyone who left the group or was kicked out. Barbara was able to largely ignore it, but Stephen couldn't and didn't. He would argue back and forth in emails and on Facebook with people. Stephen never saw it as himself attacking anyone else. He felt he was just defending himself and Barbara. And this had to be difficult because until that Steak tartare Facebook post, these were his friends. These were the only people in the world who didn't think he was quite literally crazy. They believed what he believed, and now they were attacking him. The arguing eventually turned into threats, with someone sending Stephen a message saying, we will feed your wife to our queen, Sherry. But it's when that account sent Stephen a picture of the home he and Barbara lived in that he got genuinely scared. On May 30th, he even called the police to report this online harassment. The responding officer looked at the messages and determined that the photos of the house were just taken off Google Street View. The person who sent them wasn't actually outside of Stephen and Barbara's home. Stephen was told to call again if he got any more messages like that, but he never reported anything else. Barbara tried to talk Stephen out of engaging online. His friend Lori told him to log off the computer and take a break. But the internet was Stephen's life for so long, he just couldn't let it go. During the day on Friday, July 14th, 2017, Stephen spent his day arguing with two of Sherry's followers. Barbara told him to step away from the computer and forget about it, which only made Stephen more upset. So she talked him into going out with her down the street to a bar and have a drink or two to relax. They stayed out until closing time, which was 2 a.m. They went back to their home, and Stephen told Barbara he wanted to do target practice in the woods behind the house. It was after 2 a.m., so it was very dark and they had been drinking, but they went out there and did it anyway. He told Barbara he wanted her to shoot the gun, but her self-reporting has been inconsistent on whether or not she did. The two then went inside because Barbara was tired and just wanted to lie down. And then, around 2.30 a.m., Barbara called 911. She said that her boyfriend had a gun, and he told her to hold it and press the trigger and he was dead. When first responders arrived, they found Stephen Minio dead on the floor near the bed with a gunshot wound at the center of his forehead. The gun was near his body, but not in the way it would have fallen had he been holding it. Someone had put it down where it was found. On the 911 call, Barbara said Stephen had been shot 20 minutes before she called 911, though from what I've seen, that seems to be incorrect. She either thought it was 20 minutes because time doesn't feel real in moments like that, or she misspoke and meant to say 20 seconds. I don't know, but it does sound like she called 911 not that long after he was shot. Barbara was taken to the police station for questioning. At this point, the investigators were not sure if this was a suicide or a homicide, because Barbara was often hysterical on the 911 call, and what she was describing was not clear. She made it sound like she was holding the gun, but at other times, it sounded like Stephen had shot himself. Barbara willingly spoke with the police after waiving her Miranda rights. She explained about how Stephen had gotten a bunch of negative comments on Facebook that day, and how they went to the bar, came home, shot the gun, and went inside. She said that Stephen then put the gun in her hand, pointed it at his forehead, and told her to shoot him. Stephen had mentioned being suicidal before, but Barbara didn't think he would do anything because he believed taking his life would have him condemned to hell. But it looked like he had found maybe a loophole. He wasn't going to kill himself, according to Barbara. He wanted Barbara to do it for him. Barbara didn't want to, and she told Stephen that, but in all this movement, the gun went off. She didn't know if he pulled the trigger, if he had forced her finger to pull the trigger, or what exactly happened, because it happened so fast. Barbara then had to explain to the police why Stephen was suicidal, and that meant she had to explain what had happened with Sherry Schreiner, and to do that, she had to explain who Sherry Schreiner was. So she told the investigators that she and Stephen had been in a cult, that was the word she used, but had been kicked out of it because the cult leader thought Barbara was a reptilian vampire witch, which I am sure is not something investigators hear often. Barbara was then asked for details of what happened in the shooting, like how far away from Stephen was she and how were they positioned in the room. Barbara indicated with her hands that she was about One and a half to two feet from Stephen, and that they were both standing. But the evidence proved that neither of these things were true. The gunshot wound was nearly a contact wound, it was not several inches away. And Stephen was definitely not standing. His feet were crossed, which was the first indication that he had been sitting, but the bullet had also gone through the mattress on the bed behind him. Using a dowel, they marked the trajectory, proving that he had to have been sitting on the floor with his back to the bed. When confronted with this, Barbara conceded that maybe she had it wrong. She was very tired. She had not slept since the night before. She had a couple of drinks that night, and she had just seen someone die in front of her. These details were foggy for her. But the inconsistencies were seen by the police as a changing story, and a changing story was seen as a cover-up. They continued to interrogate her, and after about six hours in the interrogation room, Barbara eventually said that yes, she pulled the trigger on purpose. And at that point, she was arrested and charged with murder. When word of Stephen's death got to Sherry Schreiner, she used it to her advantage. After all, hadn't she prophesied that Barbara would destroy Stephen? And that's exactly what happened. Sherry said God showed her what happened in the house that night. She said that Barbara and Stephen were watching TV and Barbara got excited about a bloody scene in a movie and her mask slipped. At that point, Stephen saw the demon in her, which Barbara had been successfully hiding from him. Stephen yelled, who are you? And realized in his final moments that Sherry was right. Barbara then knocked him over, shooting him first in the leg and then in the head as he begged for his life. None of this is consistent with the evidence, obviously. But remember, external inconsistencies do not count just internal ones. Those who believed Sherry believed this account and not the official one. Sherry also said that Barbara had been a military super soldier with a chip in her that had been activated to kill when she attacked Stephen. In reality, Barbara was a supply clerk when she was in the Army and rarely went outside of the office. She only shot a gun well enough to qualify at the bare minimum level required and had little firearms experience outside of that. That's why Stephen wanted her to shoot guns with him, so she would get better and be able to protect herself. But again, this is external information, and it does not count in Sherry's world. But really, do the details of what happened matter when, according to Sherry, the real Barbara Rogers got swapped out for some clone, and it was the Patsy clone who was locked up in jail. The real Barbara Rogers had been rescued by her handlers and was living free somewhere else. As proof of this, Sherry showed pictures of Barbara from Facebook and compared them to her mugshot. Clearly, these could not be the same person, a resemblance for sure, but not identical. Sherry compared cultivated pictures that Barbara chose to post on social media with a mugshot taken after six hours of overnight police interrogation. And she concluded these could not be the same person. Just wait until Sherry learns about filters. Sherry got as much mileage out of Stephen's death as she possibly could, and this shouldn't be a surprise because this was not the first time she did that. Years before, in December 2012, one of Sherry's followers named Kelly took her own life after leaving Sherry's group. Kelly, unlike Stephen, had a lot of in person, real life friends around. They knew Kelly was into conspiracy theories, and some of what she said seemed out there, but she was still herself. She went out, she worked, and this really seemed like an unconventional interest or maybe belief system. After all, were these organ stones Kelly set out for protection from negative energy really any different than? Someone using crystals or lavender oil or sage for essentially the same purpose. And Kelly was aware that her beliefs weren't traditional because when she would tell her friends to listen to Sherry's podcast, she would warn them that some of it seemed out there. They were a bit surprised that Kelly's beliefs were that aliens and vampires were literally real, But again, she still seemed herself. She didn't retreat into this world, at least not at first. Then Kelly volunteered to transcribe Sherry's podcast episodes, which were often rambly. But what they really did was increase Kelly's exposure to her teachings. Towards the end of 2012, Kelly's friends had the first hints that there was more going on here than just a strange belief system. Kelly quit school and her job and then she started talking about repressed memories that had started to emerge of alien abductions and what had happened to her during those events. At least one friend offered to get Kelly some help, but she turned it down. And then in December of 2012, she took her life. It wasn't until after Kelly's death and the reading of her diaries and letters she left behind that they really saw the extent of what was going on. It turned out that shortly before Kelly's death, she and Sherry had a falling out. Kelly didn't believe she needed a go-between between her and God. And well, that was Sherry's whole gig, the high prophet who literally spoke to God on everyone's behalf. Sherry didn't like that Kelly believed she could go around her to God, so she shut Kelly out. And it appears what happened to Stephen and Barbara happened to Kelly. This wasn't just a shunning, there were online attacks. Now that said, Kelly's notes to her family did not talk about this. She wrote more about how she was going on a mission to heaven and would be back eventually. It didn't sound like she had the intent to be gone forever. So it is possible she had a skewed perception of death at that time. Obviously, this makes us wonder about mental illness or psychosis. All Kelly had really been diagnosed with was depression, but she was in her early 20s, and it's possible this was the onset of something. We really can't know exactly what was going on and how much Sherry Schreiner influenced things. But Sherry was not going to let this opportunity to prove her importance go. Kelly's death showed that Sherry was being targeted by the powers that be. Kelly hadn't taken her own life, but was rather killed by NATO. And it was framed as a suicide to make Sherry look bad. The government was trying to discredit Sherry and make her look dangerous in order to undermine her message. And they wouldn't do that unless her message was true. Again, Sherry in action shows how radicalized ideologies work. Take the leap that the government killed Kelly and the rest follows logically. But for those of us not taking that leap, it all seems ridiculous. Kelly's death being a suicide did not garner a lot of publicity outside of Sherry Schreiner until after Stephen's death. Now there was a lot of coverage of Sherry and her group, And the public was asking, was this just a group of conspiracy theorists who gathered online, or was it a cult like Barbara said it was? And as usual, Sherry took this as an opportunity to self-promote. Sherry's defense to being a cult was she couldn't have been a cult. She wasn't making people give her their money and run off to a commune or do any of the things traditional cults do. But this isn't to say she didn't make money off of those who followed her. And to be fully transparent and self-aware, so do I. Thanks to Patreon, Apple subscriptions, and generous coffee fund donations that have me drowning in caffeine, I do get direct support from my listeners. And that's not uncommon for podcasters and YouTubers. And there are ads on my podcast and on my YouTube videos. And some people have merch sales. And Sherry really didn't make her money much differently than the rest of us. What makes her more of a cult-like figure than your average content creator is, one, she preached that her message was required to save the world, giving people more pressure to donate to make sure she could keep going, and two, the way she treated people who disagreed with her. Even those who were close to Sherry and seemingly the most devoted could get kicked out. Nothing protected you if you questioned Sherry, and you wouldn't just lose her. Your friends would turn on you, and some of them would even cyber-harass you. Maybe Sherry Schreiner didn't run a cult. Maybe it was a cult of personality. Maybe Sherry was a grifter who radicalized people who were already leaning in that direction, and she found a way to monetize it. Whatever she was, we do have to stay aware of what we are consuming online and what our children are consuming are we falling for the grift? Are we in a one-way parasocial relationship with an online creator, and are they manipulating that relationship for their own gain? There is nuance here we need to be aware of. Just because someone isn't telling us to run off and join them in the wilds of Idaho doesn't mean we aren't being unduly influenced. Now, to some degree, Stevens beliefs and this influence of Sherry Schreiner would be introduced at Barbara's trial, but it wouldn't be through Sherry herself. Sherry had agreed over email to speak to the prosecutor who was in charge of Barbara's trial, but then she stopped responding, and before they could reestablish contact, Sherry died of a heart attack in January 2018, less than a year after Stevens' death and a few weeks after her last podcast episode was released. In that episode, which I listened to for whatever reason, Sherry said Donald Trump was not her enemy because he was the first president since the early 1990s who did not have her on a top 10 kill list. But she must have been on someone's list because according to her followers, Sherry hadn't really died. God abruptly took her soul to heaven before Satan or the Satanists got to her. So the trial moved ahead without her, though her background presence would hang over the entire thing. And for some more earthly matters, we do have the usual pretrial motion to suppress Barbara's statements to the police. They argued she was emotional, lacked sleep, had been drinking, and just didn't have the mindset to consent to waiving her rights. After a hearing, the judge ruled the statements were in, so the jury heard the interview in March 2019 at trial. The defense had also asked to allow in evidence of Barbara's mental health diagnosis, but the judge wouldn't allow it. The defense was arguing that Barbara didn't do it and that Stephen had shot himself or at the very most, hand over hand, forced Barbara to pull the trigger. They couldn't then argue some type of diminished capacity while also arguing she didn't do it. The prosecution had hoped to prove first-degree murder. To do this, they had to prove intent to kill, but they didn't need to prove a motive, which was a good thing here because there was no apparent motive. The evidence of motive actually pointed more towards suicide than murder. Why would Barbara kill Stephen? There was no obvious reason. So they focused on the evidence that proved Barbara pulled the trigger and called a firearms expert to the stand. Now, the defense tried to prove Stephen was holding the gun and they had their own ballistics expert to testify to that. As for her statement to the police, the defense pointed out that while Barbara eventually told the police she pulled the trigger on purpose, it was only after saying it was an accident 24 times and having the police refuse to believe her. She basically changed her story because she was worn down and telling the police what they wanted to hear just to get it to stop. Since the judge would not allow in evidence of Barbara's mental illness, the defense spent their 45-minute closing statement focused on Stephen's mental state rather than Barbara's. He was depressed and unmoored due to losing Sherry Schreiner's group, but his views on suicide meant he couldn't bring himself to do it so he shoved the gun into Barbara's hands, and it went off accidentally. Then came time for the jury instructions, and the defense lost another pretty significant ruling. The judge decided to not include jury instructions for manslaughter. While the defense was arguing that this wasn't Barbara's fault, allowing involuntary manslaughter as a verdict would allow the jury to find her negligent, and really, their defense pointed to that as a fair verdict. But the judge wouldn't allow it. The jury had three choices, not guilty, guilty of first-degree murder, or guilty of third-degree murder. Only three states in the U.S. have a third-degree murder charge. I know it's something my non-U.S. listeners find odd, how different the laws can be from state to state within the same country. Even the definition of the types of murder are not consistent. In Pennsylvania, first-degree murder is an intentional premeditated killing. Second-degree murder means the person killed someone while committing a felony. So Barbara did not fit this definition at all. And third-degree murder is any murder that doesn't fit the other two definitions, What Pennsylvania calls third degree murder is basically what many other states would call second degree murder, intentional but not premeditated. After nine hours of deliberation, the jury convicted Barbara of third degree murder. She was then sentenced to 15 to 40 years in prison. By contrast, if the jury could have considered involuntary manslaughter and voted for that, Barbara would have been sentenced to no more than five years. And in looking at the case myself, though I do understand fully why Stevens' family and the jury disagrees with me, I do think the state proved manslaughter, not murder. Barbara appealed on a number of issues, including that the jury was not allowed to consider manslaughter, but this was all denied in 2021. If you are interested in learning more about Sherry Schreiner and her group, I recommend both season two of Vice's series, The Devil You Know, and the book Dragged Into the Light by Tony Russo. I have the book and intend to read it over my holiday break. The author was interviewed extensively for The Devil You Know, and he really came across as both intelligent and compassionate. So I feel good about recommending the book, even though I haven't gotten to it in the madness of prepping for 12 Days of Crime Lines. But I will leave a link to the Vice series and the book in the show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.